0: And please turn in those Bibles to the following passages where Joshua eight, Deuteronomy six, Matthew twenty-eight. Did I mention that I'm glad you're with us today? Can I tell you what a great time it is preparing for these studies, honestly? I thought I was done last night. I was talking to someone this morning, and it was like at 9.30, and I was like the message was done. It was all printed out, and I was like sitting outside praying. I was looking up at the stars, and God was like, you forgot something. And so I went back, right back in, and it was so cool what he showed me. And, um, and again, the purpose of all of what we do is in the Word of God to see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And I think you can attest to this, that as we've gone through the book of Joshua, we've seen Jesus, have we not? Have we not seen Jesus through every section of this book? And we will continue to see him just as vividly, just as clearly today, not for anything that a pastor's done, but for everything that the Word and the Spirit have done in order to reveal Jesus to us. So um, I'm anticipating a a good time just studying and... uh, just having this time with the Lord this morning. So we're going to start with Joshua 8, verse 30. This is the reading of God's Word. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, in Mount Eval. As Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Eval, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings, and the cursing, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, the strangers who were living among them. Again, God, we bring your word before you. We pray for knowledge. Yes, we pray to know it. But Lord, wisdom is your Holy Spirit guiding us, helping us apply it to our lives, knowing how to take these truths that were written so long ago and yet have so much application today if we were to just stop and consider. And that's why your church is gathered today. We're gathered today so that we can sit before your word, we can sing your songs, we can praise your name And that we can have that real, personal, yet corporate encounter with the living God. So today, Father, I pray that this is not so much about a feeling and leaving here with a feeling as it is a filling. Fill us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you met the Griswold clan? There's the father, Clark, and his wife, Ellen. And then there are the kids, Rusty and Audrey. And we were first acquainted with them as a culture in the 1980s when they were on a family road trip to Wally World. Do you remember the trip to Wally World? And when we met them, you could sympathize with this family and this father that was all in to getting his kids to this vacation spot, Wally World. He just wanted to get the kids to Wally World, and through accidents, and through misplaced luggage, through a death in the family, (laughs) through all of these conflicts, he gets to Wally World, and you get to Wally World, and you're so excited about getting your family to this vacation spot, and He's running with his son in slow motion to the theme of chariots of fire, and you know the scene I'm talking about. As he's running towards the entrance to the park, there's the figure of Marty Moose. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sorry for the, sorry folks, but we're closed for the season. While well, the father kind of flips out, and he actually hits the uh, moose with an epic knockout punch, if you remember. It's upsetting isn't it? I mean, you went all of this way with your family and you were all into this trip from the car that you drove to the pathway that you planned out. And he was all in. And now you get to the place through all the trial, through all the challenges, and there's investment because there's been so much effort. And because there's investment and effort, when you get there, it's closed. The problem is this, is that you had your heart set on it. And let me ask you, church, have you ever had your heart set on something that didn't quite work out? Have you ever had your heart set on a relationship and you poured into that relationship, you gave it all your heart, you gave it all your soul, and it just didn't work out? Have you ever set your heart on a sports team? Many of you here suffer from what they call MDS. MDS. Miami Dolphin Syndrome. Miami Dolphin Syndrome. And each year, you get up saying, okay, it's going to be different for us this year. It's going to be different. I'm going to wear my clothes. I don't care what the record is like. I don't care what they do. I am going to root for my team to the bitter end. It's called Miami Dolphin Syndrome because you suffer those disappointments. Why? Because your heart is set on something. It's a position at work that you thought you were going to get. And your heart was set on it, and you had these expectations. What we find is this, is that heartbreak and disappointment are only possible when there's been some level of commitment and investment. When there's commitment and investment, and the thing falls to pieces, we realize just how much we love something. I have a hard time, uh, the family just got a, a new dog. My nephew got it, his name is Rex. And I'm looking at the way that the kids are playing with the dog, And I'm like, I'm looking at the dog and I'm thinking, those things hurt. Why do those things hurt? Well, because we had Labrador retrievers my whole life. And the second one, as a teenager, I picked out this little, precious little girl, puppy, female, black Labrador retriever named Mindy from the litter. I also, 12 years later, held that dog in my arms when they gave her a shot to put her to sleep. Those things hurt. And I'm aware of that because there's a heart investment there. If there's not a heart investment, we don't care, right? And there's a sense of apathy that takes over. And yet the Bible calls us to this kind of relationship with God. We're loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We started talking about it last week. That's the relationship that we're called to with God, to love him in such way. But here's the thing, is that we set our... Passions, we get our heart set on the wrong things, the things of this earth, the temporary things, the physical things, and we wonder why when they don't work out, we're just so disappointed. We're so disappointed where maybe if what we did was we set our heart in the right place in Him and that He was the focus and the attention. All eyes were on Him, as we talked about last week. All eyes were on Him. Our hearts belonged to Him. We were on our knees before Him. Maybe things could be a little bit different in our life. And so what we saw last week was the children of Israel, after their victory at Ai, they build an altar on unhewn stones, untouched stones, so all the... All eyes are upon God. And then they're giving burnt offerings and sacrifices. And we talked about how God desires our hearts. You see, the children of Israel were going to a physical promised land. Here is the law. You can read it. You can see it. And if you obey it, you're going to go into that promised land. You're going to experience prosperity, provision, power, protection. You're going to experience all of these things if you obey this law. And you will have this physical parcel of land. Jump way ahead in the story many, 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 many years later, after many disobedient leaders, after much idol worship, we saw God had eventually removed his hand of protection from them and established a greater covenant, one that would not be dependent upon us, but a covenant dependent upon him as he's leading us to our promised land. You see, they were going to a land of milk and honey. All right, that was the land that Moses had been promised at the burning bush for the children of Israel. They were going towards the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And in Scripture, what do we think of when we think of milk and honey? Well, we think it's, all, it's a fertile land. It's a fertile land. When we think of the honey that's promised, that it will be flowing with milk and honey, it's not so much bee honey that we're familiar with. It's more like fruit nectar. And the thing is this, is that the... The tree that produced that kind of fruit, it would have to be an extremely fertile soil. And then what would happen was is that the nectar would kind of just like flow out of the fruit. And the same with the land is that if the land was extremely fertile, then the animals would feed better and then the, the livestock would be flowing with milk. So what they were promised was this extremely fertile land with God's power, God's protection. Oh, could we imagine anything better? Well, yes, now we can because of that fail, that epic fail, we have a spiritual promised land, but our spiritual promised land is a person. For the Christian, our promise and our promised land is a person, and his name is Jesus. That's our promised land. He's our promised land. When we get to heaven... There will be pearly gates, there will be roads paved of gold, but the most important component of heaven that we're all longing for is the thing, the only thing that can fill the longing in our heart even now, and that is the presence and the person of Jesus, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. So let me ask you, church, are you experiencing his presence right now? It'll be evident if you are there will be the fullness of joy. And it'll be the kind of joy that the world can't take away when the world disappoints you because the world will disappoint you. And so what we'll see today as the children of Israel are getting ready to enter their physical promised land, we're gonna see how that preparation can actually help us as God is molding and shaping and growing us in relationship with him. So the hope in the heart is, is that through the three points that we take a look at today, we're going to have three points through the course of this message today that as we look at this, we're going to see we're going to see how to engage that full relationship with God. So let's again read Joshua 8 starting at verse 31. Actually, let's start at verse 32 for the reading. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he, he being Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, took to either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of... Of Mount Gerizim and the other half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before they should be bless the people of Israel, and afterward he read all the words of the law and I just want you to, I want you to see the way that this is written, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of Moses of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel the women, the little ones, the strangers who are living among them. I want, do you see that word all stressed throughout the whole passage? What you have is the whole law, the whole truth of God, read to the whole congregation of God, and it's read so that the whole world takes a look at them, and they can take a look at God's power in their lives, because that was the purpose of the whole thing. Now think about this. The children of Israel now are going 20 to 25 miles from their last battle site, Ai. They're going 20 to 25 mi- miles. There are two mountains here. There's Mount Eval and there's Mount Gerizim. Half the tribes are on Mount Eval. The other half are Mount Gerizim. In between in the valley is an ark and the Levites and the priests, they're there and they're reading the law. And so all of the congregation, there are three million, prob- probably two million people at this time that are listening to the law of God read here. What do you think that was like? Do you think that that might have been utter chaos? Do you think it might have been kind of crazy for a second to have millions of people gathered, getting ready to go to the promised land, having this law read before them? It's going to be important that they hear the law of God before they go into the land. So the way that this looks is that the law is going to be read from the middle and all of them are going to hear and they're going to say amen. Every time a curse is read, they're going to say amen. In other words, okay, if you, if you do this, bad things are going to happen. The children of Israel hear it and they hear okay, amen. We got it. We've got it. Why? Because before they go into the land, the expectations are going to have to be clear. Otherwise, they are set up for an epic fail. The other day, I, was, I had the opportunity with a brother to go volunteer at one of the school field days. All right, hundreds of kids lined up outside, hundreds of kids, and the coach trying to get their attention saying, okay, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, and if you don't do this, and if you don't do that, then this is going to happen, and the coach is making sure that all the kids know all the rules. It's important. If we're going to hold them accountable for the rules, if we're going to hold them accountable for the law, it's important that they know it. Now, here's the thing blessings and curses are going to be read from here, okay? Blessings and curses so that all the people understand, hey, if you do the right thing, God's protection, God's power, but if you do the wrong thing, this is going to happen. He's going to remove his protection. You'll be taken advantage of by the other armies, the local armies, if you don't do it. The law is going to be clear. Interestingly enough, Mount Eval, that landscape, that mountain, it was lush, lush, vegetation and greenery. Mount Gerizim, it was arid. It was dry. It was barren. And so it was like the place where this law was read, the two split tribes are hearing the law and they're seeing, okay, your life can be this or your life can be this. You're going to have to make a choice. And we have the same choice put before us every time we have God's word of truth put before us. It's here's this lush land of promise Or here are your own choices leading to struggle, leading towards lack of provision, leading towards you you name it. You see the difference? But God's law in its entirety, it's the whole truth and nothing but the truth is going to be read to the people. So that the people can have a full understanding. And so it's the book of law. uh, genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy you're familiar with those the names of those books it's what's called the torah and that's the jewish law and i I have to say i am getting giddy about talking about this and here's why because i did a search on this word torah and this means nothing to you you say well it looks like greek to me right but it's actually not that's hebrew Uh, but this is actually old-time hebrew this is old hebrew Okay, And so this is the word for Torah, and if you see this right here, originally, before the Hebrew word that we have now, it kind of looks like a cross, doesn't it? Okay, And so that letter, and remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, how some of the Hebrew lettering, these were symbols, and these symbols were put together to form words, and these words, the symbols came together to give the word special meaning, which is very hard to capture in the English language. Now, I want you to take a look at this, because the first, this is what they call, a tav, and what this word is—it's like a cross or a sign. The second letter, this in the Hebrew language, is what they call a vav. This is a nail; it represents a nail. Okay. Now this is resh. This this symbol actually here represents man, and this represents what something comes from and the origin of something. So, can we have the next slide? Okay. So this is cool. So what you have, this is the old rendition, and as the language developed, this is what the, letter, the word turned into. This is the word T-O-R-A-H, Torah, okay? And here's what the symbolization means. This is what it means, what comes from the man nailed on the cross. Kind of cool? What comes from the man nailed on the cross, that's the word Torah. When I saw this, it kind of just blew me away. It's like I, had, I went on Facebook. I was like, wow, God's word, it destroyed me. And then I spent half the time saying, well, what do you mean it destroyed you, pastor? I spent half the time trying to explain to people what, how any kind of concept that I ever had of this word changed the moment I saw this. What comes from the man that was nailed to the cross, this was the Jewish law, a law that we couldn't fulfill. So Jesus came and he was the fulfillment for us by being nailed to that cross. But these symbols were placed there thousands of years before that cross became a reality. Is that cool? Is that kind of cool? All right, and so we have this word, and that's why it's important that we have the whole truth, because here's what the Bible says. For every one of us that looks to the law, and we stumble at one point, you're guilty of all the law. So we needed someone to come And that was the one who the law came from in the first place to come and fulfill it. That was Jesus. And so our truth is this. The whole truth and nothing but the truth has to do with the fact that we have a Savior. We were sinners in need of a Savior. And so what we have now, as we tell the church about this thing, it's called the four spiritual laws. We talked about it last week a little bit. Our law is this. When Jesus went to the cross, we have the first spiritual law. And any one of you can have this booklet. We have plenty of these booklets for you to share with your friends. The first spiritual law, it reads like this, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. That's your truth, and you have to know this. Just as those people of Israel were gathered on both sides of that mountain, and that ark was there in the presence of the Lord, so too there's a cross. And with this law, it says God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. If you want it, say amen. Okay, I want to make sure you understand it, just like the people were gathered there that day. So that's the first law. Here's the second law. Man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. So we're separated from God by sin. All right, if you understand that, say amen. Amen. All right, let's go to the third law. The third law reads like this. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him and him alone, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. If you understand it, say amen. amen. All right, now here's number four. We must individually receive Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, when we can know and experience, then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. If you understand it, say amen. Amen. So we're all clear? That's God's law. Alright, now when we know that and we're filled with that, there are laws here in the Word of God that will always benefit us to know And to live by because we're going to want to do it now. It's going to come out of understanding that Jesus Christ went to a cross. And so our obedience now is not some forced religious ritual. Our obedience is saying, God, you did this for me. I need you and I want to do things your way, because I'm tired of doing things my way. And every time we're exposed to the Word of God, for the non-Christian, you hear this and you say, I need that Jesus, because I don't have that. And for the Christian, every time the Word is opened, what's happening is there's a pruning, there's a transforming, there's something happening in every heart. Every time we open it up, every time we open it up, we're forced to respond and go either towards it or go away from it but what if you don't go towards it? What if you just stay in the same place? If you hear it and you don't respond to it, you might as well consider yourself as going away from it. That's why it's important that we have the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When I saw this, it destroyed me, honestly. I was like, wow. A cross, a nail for man. That's your law. The law isn't there as a bunch of prohibitions to prevent you from having a good time. I'm told in the Bible not to commit adultery so that I can enjoy the fruit and the benefit and the blessing of this thing that God gave me called marriage. The law frees us. But the fact of the matter is is that when we're slaves to sin, when we're slaves to sin, you can't experience God's purpose, His power, His power. So at Calvary Chapel, we find it important to teach the whole counsel of God. The whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us, God. Help us to teach the truth, because if we're ever teaching anything other than the truth, Paul told them in Acts 20, verse 27, he said, we did not hesitate to proclaim to you the entire counsel of God, understanding that when we pronounce this truth, it's going to upset some people. Some people are going to hear this, and they're going to say, uh-uh, You're telling me how to live my life. You're judging me. But the fact of the matter is this. Is that every time we open it up, your hearts are being transformed. Your minds are being transformed because you know the person of God more and you understand His expectations of your life. Let me ask you. If we don't have that final authority, is there truly a moral law? No, there's not. There's no real moral law if there's not a final authority behind it. And you can see this in government over the course of the years, what was considered unacceptable in the days of Archie Bunker. All right? Now that would not be acceptable today, but there are things that are on TV today that would have not been acceptable (laughs) back then. And so there's this moral dynamic, there's this flip flop, because here's the thing it's like people don't recognize the final moral authority of the Bible. And if we don't acknowledge the final moral authority, there ain't no good guys. There ain't no bad guys. There's only you and me, and we just disagree. It's your idea of what's wrong versus my idea of what's wrong without a final authority behind it. So the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that's what we'll teach. And we'll teach it to the whole congregation It says there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. With the women, the little ones, the strangers who were living among them this was the first no child left behind. Everybody is being taught. The entire congregation is being taught the entire word of God. Our responsibility as a church is to every willing heart that comes through that door to feed them. What kind of a dad am I? If you come over to my house, right, and I've got this delicious meal prepared, and uh, you're all on a 40-day fast, I won't go there. Yes, I will. All right, we've got some steak. We've got your favorite sweets. We've got caffeine. I want to make sure I hit everyone here. We've got some caffeine. We've got your chocolate. We've got steak. We've got a salt shaker, which your pastor's fasting from. All right, we've got all of these things before the family, and I've got a seat. For John, John, I've got a, a full plate. For John, John, I've got a full plate. For Tiffany, I've got a full plate for myself. And then there's Hannah, and there's no plate for her. Some of you want to hang me for even talking like that. To the ones of you that know my daughter, what kind of a dad am I if they come to the table and I don't have a feeding for everyone? And so the church is called to this. We're tr- we're told to give to the whole congregation in a diet that they can tolerate and so we have non-believers and hopefully we'll teach in a way that the non-believers can understand but there's also new believers who are growing in their faith because the moment you came to Jesus here's what happened you were born again and being born again well you need to have that nourishment that constant nourishment and tending to all right and then there are nominal believers some people that are kind of here kind of not here so you've got the non-believer you have got the new believer you have got the nominal believer and then you've got a seasoned believer somebody that's been a christian for a while they have to be challenged too and so god's word has to be given in a way that people can listen and so pastor chuck used to say this is that calvary chapel was about simply teaching the bible simply simply teaching the bible simply dl moody the same thing he didn't dl moody didn't speak like spurgeon Moody spoke with passion and clarity in a way that the world listened to and the world was like, whoa, this is something. This word is actually reaching into my heart and touching my heart, and it's truth. That's the church's responsibility. It's not good enough for us to do an altar call, all right, and have people come up. I have decided to follow Jesus, and they're excited, and we're excited, and then we shake hands and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Bye-bye. The church is not called to make converts. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to love people and give them the Word of God. That's our responsibility as a church to love them, give them the Word of God, and as the Holy Spirit convicts their heart in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do, then it's the church's responsibility because the church is called to make what? Make disciples. Make disciples, man. To bring them along. And so the children's curriculum is going to be different than the teenagers' curriculum. And the teenagers' curriculum is going to be different than the adult curriculum. But it's all the same truth. We just have to be mindful about who we are giving it to. Many years ago, my wife and I were working with a youth group and some of these guys barely spoke English. And, and the guy came up to me and a couple of the other guys that were working with the kids and he was like, well, you know, you're, you, you know all you need to do is read them the King James Version of the Bible. You don't even need to tell stories. You don't need to illustrate All you need to do is give them the King James and make sure it's King James version of the Bible. They couldn't understand it. Simply teaching the Bible simply. Simply. Let me tell you today, I get excited about something like this. But if you leave talking about the pastor's knowledge of Hebrew, then this is an epic fail. If you go away talking about the wonder of the word of God, epic success. You go away talking about God's word is awesome. I saw something today, and thousands of years before the cross ever happened, there was this word meant for the Jewish law, and it was in the form of this, 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 and this, and if you walk away with that and you say, God's word is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Mission accomplished. It's the whole truth. It's to the whole whole congregation it's irrespective of economic brackets it's irrespective of age it's irrespective of race or ethnicity the gospel is for every tribe every tongue every nation and with that understand it's also as a favorite pastor of mine used to say an equal opportunity offender that when you hear some of the truths of this book It's our responsibility to give it anyway. In love, but always truth. That said, we won't go back to the book of Joshua, but I would like you to turn in your Bible. It's just a couple of pages back from Joshua, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does our responsibility to teach the church look like? I think that it was articulated in the law of Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, in this passage that is known as the Shema. This passage reads like this, and some of you have heard it Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you see what's being said here? Hear, O Israel. This is why it's called the Shema. It's like, what this word entails is not taking your eyes off of God. Do not take your eyes off of him. Commit your eyes to him. Why? Because when our eyes are on him, everything kind of makes sense. We're able to see what's happening on there, respond to it in a way that's pleasing to God, and because we're doing that, we have the power of God behind us. If, however, we take our eyes off of God, how many of you have taken your eyes off of God and gotten in a little bit of trouble? All right, if you've taken your eyes off of God and you've gotten yourselves in a little bit of trouble, that's why it says, hear, O Israel. In other words, attention must be paid. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But I want you to see something else here. In verse 5 where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. That phrase there, shall be in your heart. There's one more word I want to show you today. And this is kind of cool too. Can you pull up the last one? This is the last one. This is the word for shall be in your heart. It's basically a, it's, it's, it's like three, three letters. And this letter here means two things. It means home and heart. Home and heart. And when the word is doubled up, What it signifies is a joining together of the heart of man and the heart of God. That God has made his heart our home. How many of you have heard the phrase that home is where the heart is? And how many of us would not be in as much trouble we're in if our heart was made with God, if he was our dwelling place, if he was living in us and we're abiding in him, as the verse that we've been talking about so often lately says, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. What would it be like, okay? If we're to teach the whole law to the whole congregation, what if we were teaching our kids and always looking for opportunities to interject God's truth into their life, giving them the Word of God? Hey, John, John, this reminds me of something we learned in church the other day. What if we were always looking to do that? His desire is, was, always, has been is your heart and his desire is this also he says listen when you wake up at night when you go to sleep when you walk along the road when you're sitting down when is a good time to talk about God do you think that maybe if we had more Christ centered conversation things might be a little differently out there If the things that we were doing were more focused on Christ, if our conversation, if our hearts were set upon Him, remember what we talked about in the beginning, to have our hearts set on something? If our heart was set on making Him our home, and having Him make make His home inside of us, what would that look like for each life? It's the whole truth to the whole congregation. If there are kids that come into our church that don't have the ability because of their infants or because, like my daughter, their special needs, if they don't have the ability to necessarily fully understand the truth of God's word, then we make sure as a church we're praying for them. And we're looking for any way to get to their heart possible. If there are new believers, then we have to make sure we're bringing them along. If there are people that have been walking in the faith for a while, we have to make sure we're bringing them along and that we're offering a feeding, a meal that's going to satisfy everybody because Jesus... When he was restoring Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The whole truth to the whole congregation. Last point is this until the whole world hears. The whole truth to the whole congregation, to the whole world hears. Pastor, what does that have to do with the book of Joshua? I understand that the rules had to be made clear before they were to enter the land. I get that, but what does this have to do until the whole world hears, well, here's what it has to do with it. This was God's intention, that if the people were listening to God's law and they were experiencing God's law, what would happen was this. They would experience God's power and enjoy God's provision as they were living out God's plan and fulfilling God's purpose. And so the rest of the nations would look out and they would say, Man, that's their God. I wish he was my dad. I wish he was my dad. And that's what it was meant to do that the children of Israel would so experience the power of God and the love of God that people would look and say, These people are well loved. I don't want people to look at my marriage and say, If that's what marriage is like, I'm never getting married. How many of you have had marriages like that you've seen in your life that you said, You know what? I am never getting married. All right, when I was one, working in Dad's butcher shop, most of you know the story, was that people would say, hey, John, when are you getting married? I'd say, May. They'd say, May, yeah. I'd say, May the day never come. <laughs> Interestingly enough, my wife's last name is Day. <laughs> cool? So, <laughs> so when we got married, my father made sure during the toast that he was like, well, he reminded me of that moment in the butcher store when I would say, well, may the day never come. He says, well, the day has come for my son. All right. The goal is this is that people look at my family and don't say, man, their family is like family feud the home game. You know, (laughs) the goal is not that. The goal is not when they walk into our church, boy, I walked into this church today and it was so incredibly dysfunctional, I can't wait to go back next week. (laughs) That's not the desire, folks. The desire is this is that we are falling so much in love with the word of God. Here's what I love about what God's doing at Calvary Chapel. We have a women's group that's popped up. We have a community group on Thursday nights that's popped up. We have another uh, group that's uh, going on Monday nights that's becoming a community group. And we see little Bible studies happening here and happening there and happening here and happening there. Why? Because people are hearing the word of God and they're saying, I just need more of this. I need more of God's truth. And as people see us falling in love with the word of God, they're gonna say, listen, I need that. I want that badly. So let your light shine before all men. Let them see your good works that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven, because that's what we're told to do. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, so that the whole world hears. The whole world. You see, you woke up today. I have proof of it. Okay? You woke up today. I have proof of it. You're here. All right? And if you're doubting it, all you have to do is go like this. Okay, You're here, which means there's somebody out there that needs to know the word of God because the church is still on the planet earth at this time. And because the church is still on the planet earth at this time, God still has a purpose. And that purpose starts with worship. And when our worship is aligned, when we go out there, we're saying, okay, God, just one more, just one more. Who needs to know this today? Let me take out my little true life card that the church gave me and if I can't answer the questions, I'll give them this little card and it'll at least show them how to get to the church. They can look up on the website and they can see any of the topics they might, might be struggling with. It's something. Do something until the whole world hears. That's why the church is here. So that we can let the people know about the power of God and the love of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit Bring it into the world. It's no good if we just sit here and we stay in church and it's like, well, I felt good about that. Let's go to lunch afterwards and we forget about it until the next time we come through the doors. It doesn't say sit in your church. Sittest thou in the church and waiteth for people to come in. It says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations so that they can see what's happening in the hearts and lives and understand this is that with every member here a minister, Yes, you've just all been ordained by the pastor. No, not by the pastor, by the word of God. There's this thing called the priesthood of all believers. The moment you came to the cross, you repented of your sins, you asked Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life at that moment. You had a responsibility. Pastor, my life is so frustrating right now. I'm not making the money I thought I would be making. I'm not working the job I think I should be working and I'm struggling, I really don't have anything to offer because I'm just going through my own struggles. Did you think that maybe we're going through our own struggles because this is the thing that we were meant to put the priority on and then that thing would fall into place? To first be telling people about Jesus, to be worshiping Him, to let people take a look at our lives and see the fruit, to see the beauty, to see the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. Maybe we started in the wrong place. Maybe we put our effort, maybe... We put our efforts, maybe we set our heart on the wrong thing. Saw this movie recently, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Spoiler alert, (laughs) okay, if you haven't seen the movie yet, when I saw this movie, it was pretty compelling to me. Because the character's name is Desmond Doss. He's a Seventh-day Adventist, and he was a conscientious objector during World War II. He's estimated to have saved between 50 and 100 lives, but he never carried a weapon. He never carried a weapon. He held true to his values and even received the Congressional Medal for Honor for his service. But let me tell you how he did this. When he first got to his unit, he received a lot of pushback, even beatings. For refusing to touch a firearm attempted court martial when they finally let him serve his unit was assigned the dreaded the dreaded hacksaw ridge it was like this little cliff that that they would have to get up and they'd have to get over this ridge and the fact of the matter is whenever the soldiers whenever the units would go up over this ridge they would come down destroyed decimated those who came down at all Most of the units would be completely destroyed when they went up there. And the carnage was amazing. When he went up there with his unit, it was no different. People were dropping like flies. People that he'd served with, people that he had gone through boot camp with, they were dropping all around him. And in the midst of the storm, when everybody else was going back down the ridge and they were all retreating, he made a decision saying, okay, God, Just let me save one of them. I'm going to go back into the fire. With no firearm, I'm going to go back in the fire and I'm going to save these guys. These people that were sitting up there helpless and wounded. I'm going to go back into the battle despite the fact that I don't have the proper weaponry according to the United States Army. I'm going to go back in and I'm going to take them out. He dragged down 50 to 100 people on his own, lowering them down. Why? Because there was a willingness to make a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice. He didn't go there thinking, okay, you know what? There, there's no sacrifice until but this. No greater love hath a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. He went into battle knowing that each person that he was going to save, it could have been his last. So why didn't we tell people about Jesus again? If you are all of the understanding and agreement that what we're in is a war out there, If we can come to that agreement that we're in a war, that we're in a battle, then let me ask you something. If you've been saved, do we not have the responsibility to take the message that has been given to us and impart it to someone else? What would you think if you were sitting out at a diner and there was a crime going on outside and across from you there was a police officer and he was just eating his meal while they were committing a crime right there? What kind of a police officer are you? Or a building is on fire and the firemen are sitting there and they're playing some football outside. They're throwing the football around but they're not putting the fire out. What kind of a fireman? If you understand that your soul has been saved, then you understand that the responsibility that comes with that saved soul comes to go out there and to do something about it so that we can get just one more. Because we're here, because we're here, there's still mission out there. last illustration, let's say you were a doctor. And everybody had the same disease and it was killing everyone. Their symptoms were different but everybody had the same disease. The symptoms were different and they were slowly dying. You discovered the cure. If you had that cure and you didn't bring it to them. You really have the cure-all, Christian. You really have the cure-all for all of life's hurts to fill those deep painful gaps that people have in their lives out there caused by loss that they just can't get past disappointments that they just can't shake anger whatever it is you've been given the cure all we have the solution the solution is not a place evolution is a person. His name is Jesus.